I have ripped Grand Theft Auto 5 apart. I finished it at 14 the week it released, I played it through to adulthood, and now, 11 years later, I still return to it. I did every stunt jump, robbed every liquor store, found every mystery, and listened to every track on that time capsule of a radio. Hell, I even got through a round of golf. Over a thousand people have worked on GTA 5, and after a decade, I thought I was done. I have seen and experienced and shot my way through everything these people have built. But I was wrong. At some point in university, I fell into the habit of booting the game up, getting into a car and just driving aimlessly while I worked. It was a way to clear my brain, but I ended up finding something new. The city. Oh, the city. When there's a race to win or firefight to have, it's reduced down to pathways, angles, choke points. But with a world that was functionally empty of purpose, it ceased to be a video game level and I started to wander it as if it was a real place. Those pathways became roads, roads with stuff alongside them. Fruit stalls and homeless camps, music stages, vineyards and graveyards. Little Mexico squirreled away by the side of a highway that I did not find until my fourth playthrough. Everything I plowed past on the way to my next objective was here. It resembled a real city, yes, but almost more importantly, a city that was made. We all know that Los Santos was sculpted by hundreds of developers, but we tend to forget that. Those hundreds of hands become acutely clear, however. With every immature joke I found, every satirical graffiti, every mistake that slipped through, every tiny, lovingly crafted detail dropped in for no other purpose than someone at Rockstar wanted to go the extra mile. And there is detail everywhere you look. Roadside memorials, scarecrows and statuettes, broken tractors, donut ovens, shoes on power lines and bras on taxidermy boars, snakes and totem poles and cool champagne and film cameras and hatchet practice and painted tiles and... As kids, we understand the world by taking it apart. We see phones, cameras, toys that sing, and there's some inherent wonder at how they could possibly work. We crack open a watch, endlessly ticking as if by magic, and inside find layers of intricate gears that prompt even more questions. It's this self-fulfilling cycle of curiosity. And some of us carry this curiosity into adulthood. And if you spend your time watching video essays, I can safely assume you're one of them too. But by now, the mechanics of the world are no longer a mystery to us. We want to find new surprises, and there is something that always provides. Ah. Our fascination with understanding leads us to disassemble art. It's why we scan through layers of paintings, watch videos called The Real Meaning Explained, listen to speedrun breakdowns and multi-hour retrospective on games we never played. We just can't get enough. Stephen King describes this compulsion pretty pessimistically in his novel Misery. Paul had grown more and more resigned to the fact that he could no longer read stories as he had when he was a kid. By becoming a writer, he had condemned himself. 
to a life of dissection. Now this sounds all kinds of cynical, right? The word dissection is especially evocative here because it's a procedure done after a subject has died. A good story has meaning and purpose and belief, and to dissect it not only cuts it into pieces, but completely extinguishes that life inside. Something beautiful reduced to sentences on a page. Well, I disagree. Let's talk about it. There's a show on YouTube called Boundary Break, whose whole objective is to take a camera anywhere we want to try and find secrets and discoveries in some of our favorite games. That's what they call it, but I would call it a form of art analysis. When we leave the usual mechanics of gameplay behind and unshackle the camera from its intended perspective, a more holistic view of these games emerges. Get closer, and you can see the craft behind the models, the liveliness of their animations, the texture work. You can spot details you missed in the fray of gameplay, and find nods a developer must have hoped someone would find eventually. Zoom out, and you'll start to notice the set design, the scene composition, the architecture, the atmosphere, a sense of place. Boundary Break is in a unique position, because this kind of art analysis can only be done in video games. No matter how hard you try, you'll never find more frames to a movie, more lines to a novel, but games, by their nature, carry on off the edge of the canvas. And the edge of that canvas is where something really interesting happens. Because Boundary Break doesn't stop at showing us things that were intended to be seen. Consistently, they turn character models inside out, smash through walls, show us cut corners and moments where animations break down. There's almost a sadistic enjoyment in revealing these rough edges just out of our curated view. Nowhere is this better exemplified than in my favorite running bit, the low-poly birds segment. I mean, look at these things. Crudely put together and barely textured, deformed, janky little paper mache. The technical reason that video game birds tend to look like this is because there is only so much detail a graphics card can handle at once. They keep getting better, but developers take this ever-increasing processing power and put it towards these beautiful characters and fluid animations and physics and crisp sound work. And as these become more complicated, invariably something else has to be sacrificed. Birds are the common victim because they're small and insignificant, far up in the sky where you'll never really get a good look at them. And over the last decade, games have gotten incredibly detailed. There is rarely anything in the game now that you can't get closer to. Uh, no food dish that doesn't look delicious, no cigarette pack or whiskey bottle that doesn't sheen with gold foil, no vista you can't frame in photo mode, uh, but you don't get something for nothing. And as these worlds become more detailed, the sacrifices they make only grow. The more lifelike the play unfolding in front of our eyes, the cruder the edges that hide just out of view. So this is as close to a dissection that we can get with any piece of art. It's this ugly, botched hack job, akin to ripping apart a tapestry or smashing a vase to see what's inside. Our suspension of disbelief, our immersion, our sense of atmosphere, they're all completely shattered. Games look ridiculous when they're cut open like this, and none of them can survive it. The patient is dead. 
And yeah, it makes me appreciate them even more. I look at this origami bird and I know how it was made. But when I look at Arthur Morgan in Red Dead Redemption 2, I don't see polygons. I see a human being. I see a man who walks and talks, who has beliefs and principles, who gets tired and sings when he's drunk, with paws on his cheeks and locks of hair behind his ears and a tight gun grip. He feels alive. So it's only when he breaks, only when this illusion is shattered, I'm reminded that he's not alive. But he's just like that bird. A triumph that took hundreds of people all doing their individual parts to bring him to life. And somehow, that feels more real. I uh, struggled for a very long time to find the words for this essay. Uh, to communicate how something as silly as a broken video game can feel so intimate to me. And I ended up finding those words when I went to the theatre for the first time since childhood. A few things surprised me. How fun it is, how easy it is to understand Shakespeare. But most of all, how at no point did it ever try to pretend it's anything but a stage play. For example, one scene was set inside a hotel during a snowstorm, and it was a hotel in the loosest of terms. Every wall was a bare facade with unpainted edges. A fireplace in the middle of the room consisted of orange tissue paper that just waved about. A window blew open in the gale, and I'm pretty sure I saw a guy back there swinging it back and forth. At one point, an actor tripped mid-line and everyone else broke character to giggle. At first impression, you can take this as laziness or budget constraint, but that's not right. This was a major theatre in central London showing a play with a staggering amount of marketing behind it. I'm convinced that if the director wanted a tornado blizzard to rip through the stage, the only question would be from the left or from the right? No, this was on purpose. They wanted us to see how it was done, uh, how much fun they were having. The wooden joints of the set and the fingerprints in the paint, just bare and naked. While movies will spend billions desperately trying to convince you to believe they're anything but a movie, theatre doesn't even try. It's a piece of art that is proud of being made. And that's when that childlike wonder comes back around. And increasingly, games yearn to show us how they're made in the same way as theatre. Take Resident Evil 4, it's a real games game. It's comprised entirely of interlocking systems where every part serves a purpose. Every action is a trade-off, and there isn't a single moment when you're not thinking four steps ahead. It doesn't care about anything but headshots and high scores. So when you prove that you have mastered these systems, you'd expect the game to reward you with upgrades. A new gun or a tool for dishing out damage. The last thing you'd expect is what the majority of rewards consist of models and concepts are to look at. But that's exactly what I want. I have spent milliseconds lining up headshots and timing perfect parries to all of these enemies, and now I get to actually look at them. The occultist detail in their dress, their infectious decay, the ornate jewels and carvings that line the treasure I nabbed without even a second thought to sell off for more bullets. Uh, even the eggs. It feels like Resident Evil rewards you for engaging with it by dropping the theatre play, by turning the lights on, and saying, come and see what's behind the curtain. 
And there is so much beauty behind that curtain. We can take a great game like Metro Exodus, with all of its fantastic gameplay and characters and story and just strip all of that out. Leave it with nothing but just code and the world. Leave it with nothing to try to convince us that this world is real and alive and then wonder its desolate wasteland where a piece of art used to be. Like we would an empty, dark stage after a play and we'll still find life in the props. There, among the rubble of this game, are compote jars and Christian icons and lace curtains and these vintage workout posters. And looking at them, I know whoever made this had the same childhood as me. The cool thing about breaking a video game is that the fingerprints of the artist still remain. I may be dissecting a dead piece of art, but the heart is still there and it's still beating. And this is the reason so many people are drawn to speedrunning and data mining and glitch finding. Boundary Break is not the work of one person, but entire communities dedicated to developing these unshackled cameras and model viewers. Communities that find the cracks to slip through, that discover buried secrets and ideas lost to the cutting room floor, that often even speak to the developers themselves to learn more about just the most insignificant detail. It's not a dissection, and it doesn't destroy the life inside these games. I actually think we crave to feel this kind of connection with art. And it's only when we get too close, when we look behind the curtain, when we break something, that this wall between us and the person who created it crumbles. It takes serious appreciation and reverence and love for something to want to understand it this intimately. And that is the joy of breaking games apart. Thank you to my patrons, Owen, Dushan and Ibrahim. And thank you to Boundary Break for, you know, doing what you're doing. Thank you.